If you've got a Bible this morning, I want you to open uh, to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll do it like this today. Ephesians chapter 4, we've been looking together for the last several months uh, in the scriptures at 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 10. We'll put this on the screen for you and I want to read it to you again. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 10 says, May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Can you say those words with me? Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Now this translation says, may the God of all grace do this for you. If you look in, in some of the cross references and some of the original ways it was written, it actually says this, God will do this. The God of all grace will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And I like that word will. You know why? Because it reveals something. What do you suppose it reveals? His will. The word will reveals his will. So when the Bible says the God of all grace will perfect you, right then you know what the will of God is for you. What is his will? That you would be perfected. The God of all grace will establish you. So you know right there, it's not God's will that you wander around and stumble around in this life. You know, according to this verse, the God of all grace, his will is to establish you. Somebody say, his will is to establish me. That's the will of God for you. The reason I love this is because there's so many people needlessly wondering what the will of God is for their life. I just wish I knew God's will. I just wish I knew what God wanted for me. I just wish I knew the will of God for my life. Can I help you with that? Start with scriptures that say, this is the will of God for you. Start right there. And if you'll start there and become familiar with that, then the same God who spoke those words will speak by the same spirit in your spirit and add to it whatever else he needs to add to it. But you start with what he's already said in his word. And if you want to know what the will of God is for your life, start right here. God's will is that I be perfected, completed, developed, full grown, mature, like we started talking about last week. God's will is that I be established. God's will is that I be strengthened. Weakness is not God's will for your life. Not in any area of your life, spirit, soul, or body. His will is to strengthen you. And that is what the God of all grace will do in your life. His will is to settle you. Not for you to live unstable. Not for you to live up and down on what I call that solar coaster. <laughs> That's what a lot of people are living on. Emotionally, it's a solar coaster, man. It's up, it's down, it's left, it's right, it's doing loops, it's making people nauseous. I mean, it is, it, but God never intended for you to live like that. He never intended for you to live unsettled or unstable. What is God's will for you? That you be settled, that your heart be fixed trusting in him. Amen. Amen. And as we've talked about these words, we know, and we've said it over and over that when, as this is happening in your life, man, you're better than you've ever been. When the God of all grace is working in you and perfecting you and restoring things to you, maybe something was missing, but he went to work and now you're better than you were before. Better than ever. Those are the words the Lord gave us about this year. Better than ever. How you doing church? Better, better than ever. I love it. And when you're perfected, established, strengthened, and settled, you are doing better than you've ever done. But what the Lord's 
begun to add to this for us starting last week. And I know we had kind of a snowy day last week and maybe some folks missed it. If you missed last week's message, I encourage you to go back and get it. It's free online. But we started looking at something and maybe looking at these words in, in a new way, from a different perspective. Not just trying to imagine ourselves perfected, established, strengthened, and settled. Although that's good, that's wonderful, and you need to be able to do that. But it doesn't start with you just closing your eyes tight and thinking real hard. All right, what do I look like perfected? What do I look like established? What do I look like strong? What do I look like settled? As long as you're trying to work that up in your brain, you're going to find some difficulty with that. But like I said to you last week, this is what the gift of the Holy Spirit is in you for. His entire job is to show you Jesus, is to reveal Jesus to you. So really, you don't have to... Think so hard about what you look like, perfected, established, strengthened, and settled. All you have to do is let the Holy Ghost go to work in you, showing you Jesus. Because Jesus is the picture of perfection. Amen? Jesus' life on this earth is, is a demonstration of what it looks like to live life established, strengthened, and settled. I want to put this scripture on the screen for you. This is out of the book of 1 John, chapter 4. Beginning in verse 12, the Bible says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been what? There's that word, that word that we're looking at there in first Peter perfected. His love has been perfected, brought to completion. By this, we know we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent the son as the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been, shout it out church, perfected, perfected. We've got to let the Bible define perfection. When you start thinking about you being perfected, let the Bible define what that means. And again, we are not talking about flawlessness. We're not talking about after the flesh arriving at this sinless, flawless state. Listen, after the flesh, we don't get there. So if we're not talking about that, then what is perfection about? It's about maturity. It's about growing up. That's what this word is all about. It's about being complete. Somebody say complete. 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 Man, what would it be like to live life complete? Not missing one thing. Not being robbed of anything. Not, not being broken in any way. To live life whole. Wholehearted whole and sound in your mind, whole and sound in your body. That's what this is about, being complete. And when he's talking about love here, he's talking about that kind of love, full love, fully developed love, complete love, nothing missing in this love. And he's saying we abide in God and, and that love abides in us. Now notice verse 17, he said, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because, now say these words with me, as he is, so are we 
in this world. The Good News Bible translation of that says, love is made perfect in us in order that we may have courage on judgment day. Now, of all the days to have some courage, that's quite a day. To stand at the throne of God and not be afraid, not have any fear, not have any shame, have nothing but confidence and courage at the throne of God. Where's that come from? Comes out of what he's saying right here. We have this courage in order on judgment day. We'll have it because our life in this world is the same as Christ's. The Berean study Bible says it like this. In this way, love's been perfected among us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment for in this world, we are just like him. That's what this series we're in is all about right now. Just like Jesus perfected just like him established just like him strengthened and settled just like Jesus. That's what we're talking about. So you're there in the book of Ephesians chapter four. Look at this. We, we uh, made mention of it last week. Look at it again with me. Ephesians chapter four, beginning around verse 11. It says, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. What for? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. Other translations say the perfecting. That's what's happening right now right where you sit. That's why we come to church. That's why we listen to the word. It's because as saints, God has given us these gifts to perfect us, not to make us flawless, but to equip us. That's what this word means. This equipping you need equipment, which means you've got a job to do. You have a ministry. Say it out loud. I got a ministry. Now, your, main, your ministry may never put you on a platform. It may never put you behind a pulpit, but that doesn't mean you don't have a ministry. You have one. And that's what the scripture is talking about. God gave these ministry gifts for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. You've got to have some equipment to go do what God's called you to do. I think in the weeks ahead of us, we're going to talk some about that equipment, but let me just give you a little quick sneak peek. You got to have the Holy Ghost, church. He is the equipping of the saints. Jesus said it like this. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. Jesus had to have some equipping to do his job. You need the same thing. That's what's happening in here this morning. Equipping is taking place for the, the equipping, the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to a perfect man. If you were with us last week, then we made this decision together. We are gonna stop saying nobody's perfect. I know you've said it, I've said it, but we're gonna stop saying it. Number one, who remembers the first reason we're going to stop saying nobody's perfect? Because somebody is. Who? Jesus. Jesus. So we're going to stop saying nobody's perfect. Number one, because it's a lie. Jesus is. But we're going to stop saying nobody's perfect for another reason. Because it's always an excuse for the flesh. It's always an excuse for somebody who's yielding to their flesh. 
Somebody who's just letting the flesh say what it wants to say, do what it wants to do, think how it wants to think, go where it wants to go. And then when somebody calls them on it, they're like, well, whatever, you know, nobody's perfect. They're just making an excuse for the flesh. Church, we're going to quit doing that. We're going to quit saying nobody's perfect. One, Jesus is. And two, we're not going to make excuses for our flesh. And you can see why that's so important here as you keep reading. He says, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith, verse 13, of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. That word again, full grown, mature, of full age, complete, fully developed, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children. Can you see that, that the concept of perfection is not about being flawless, it's just about being grown up? It's just about being mature. And we've got some growing to do. Yeah, I know we might be in adult bodies, but that doesn't mean we have developed spiritually. That doesn't mean we've developed in our faith and that we've grown as we should. And he even uses these words to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Does anybody have a doorway in their house with little pencil lines going up the side? Sarah's, Sarah's parents at their house in Branson, there's a room downstairs. It's Papa's hunting room. And the doorway going into Papa's hunting room has all these little pencil marks up the side of justice when he was, I don't know, three, and then when he was five, and then when he was 10, and, and, and Jesse the same way, these little measuring marks that go up and up and up and up. Now think about it. What if Jesus were to stand in the doorway? He's talking about coming up to, the, to this perfect man, to the measure that's what those little marks are, measurements, to the measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, Jesus, if he stands there, he's, he's full grown, fully developed, fully mature. How many think the rest of the body needs to catch up with the head? It's not okay that the head be full grown and the body be a baby. That's just weird looking. You don't want that. I don't want that. We've got to grow into this perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is all about growing up, that we should no longer be children. What are children? They're tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up, grow up. He's still talking about growing up. Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head. When we're speaking the truth in love, when love is manifested in the body, it causes the body to grow. Love is not only though what causes the body to grow, love is proof that the body is growing. Love in our lives is a mark of spiritual maturity. That's what 1 John 4 was all about when he said, as he is, so are we in this world. I read all those verses to you that are all about the love of God, the perfected love of God. Nobody has seen God at any time, but when you are loving you and me is loving you and you is loving me, guess what people see? God. Now, maybe they've never seen God in the flesh, but when they're seeing love, when they're seeing that perfected love, they're seeing him. 
And as he is, well, how is Jesus? He is manifested love. Jesus is proof of love. He's proof that you're loved. And you can say a lot of things to God and you can ask a lot of questions. Well, one, I don't recommend you throw in his face. I don't recommend you accuse him of not loving you. Don't ever do it. Because all he's ever done is love you. And everything he's ever said is proof that he loves you. And the greatest gift that's ever been given to anybody, Jesus Christ, is evidence and proof he loves me. He loves me, he loves me, he loves me. And as that love is working in us, coming out of us, it's, it's a marker. It's like, it's like coming over to the wall and, and, and making another mark. It's like watching the kid grow from when he was three to when he was four. And, and year after year, the, the mark gets higher and higher and higher. And the more love is on display in our lives, that's another mark of maturity and another mark of growing up and another mark of developing and another mark, another measure of perfection. The love of God on display. Hmm. He said that we should no longer be children, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him who is the head. Love is the key to our growth. Now, if you want to talk about love, there are two places in the scripture that I think you should look more than any other. We've looked at 1 John chapter 4, but the other one is 1 Corinthians 13. Go there with me. You doing okay? Are you happy? Are you comfortable? You're a little quiet. You're just soaking it up. You're soaking it in. You're good. All right. 1 Corinthians 13. I want to start here down towards the end of the chapter, then we'll back up. You remember this word perfect? We're still talking about the perfection that is Jesus. And it means, like we've said, to be full grown, to be developed, to be complete. In verse 9, he says, we know in part. In other words, we don't know completely. We know a part. And we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect, when that which is complete has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And immediately he goes into verse 11, talking about this. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. He's talking about the difference between knowing in part and knowing completely, prophesying in part and prophesying completely. And he goes from that right into talking about the way a child lives. And he said, when I was a child, he said, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child and I understood. Other translations say, I reasoned like a child. Now, when we think about children or we look at children, one of the things that I, I guess to us defines their childhood and their adolescence would be their physical stature. They're little, little, little guys, little guys and girls. I mean, they're, they're down low. You got to get down to talk to them, right? And that just sort of seems to be a defining characteristic of a child. But Paul didn't make any reference to anything physical. He didn't make any reference to a physical measure a measurement, a stature. He said, when I was a child, my childhood was defined 
by the way I spoke. Childhood was defined by the way I thought. Childhood for Paul and for all of us, he said, was defined by the way I understood things, by the way I reasoned about things. Now think about it, and you would, you would probably acknowledge the same way. You know what? There is a way that a child speaks that is so indicative of a child. With our phones now, it's different than when most of us were growing up. My, my dad, when I was growing up, had one of those uh, video camcorders that took a VHS cassette that was about that big. And it was like surgically implanted on his shoulder. So much of my childhood, I saw my dad, but I saw that video camera right there. And he was so good at it, man. He documented everything. We've got whole seasons of Little League Baseball, and we've got first this and first that. And my, both my parents were kind of in the television world. My mom was the television producer for my grandfather's broadcast. My dad was the art director. And so there was always, it wasn't enough just to be like, hi, Jeremy, smile at the camera. We had scripts. We had to make sure things were lit properly, that the audio was good. Can I get a check on audio? Okay, we sound good. All right, lights, camera, action, and rolling. And we've got these whole productions that little Jeremy would do. And if you go back and watch some of these videos, I had this, such a deep southern draw that I've been delivered from. But I had that as, had it as a child, and, and my dad's got these videos. It, we stood outside a hotel one time in Hawaii, and dad said, all right, uh, Jeremy, um, give the people a tour. Go. And, and this video, this particular camera had a microphone attached to it, so I've got this microphone. Hello, thank you for coming today, and I would like to show you around this. We are at this hotel, and it, you know, just rambling, ad-libbing, you know, that's what it was like growing up in my house. Um, we have a little bit of the same thing now, except everybody's got the phone, so our kids won't remember the big camcorder, but they will have images. They will think their, their parents have a phone surgically attached to their hand. I mean, think about it. Our little infants that are just moments old, the first thing they see is that iPhone in their face. <laughs> My brother-in-law, Jordan, I know when his little ones were born, he got out his phone and he starts, I, I took this picture and I got to show you, and he's doing this. Where, where's that picture? And this was of day one, right? And this is what we're doing all the time. One of the things I did when our kids were little, took a lot of pictures, took a lot of video, but one of the things I'm so thankful I did was I got audio. No video, just audio. And I would get in bed with Justice when he was really little. And I'd say, buddy, what'd you do today? Tell me about your day. And we'll, we'll go back. Am I telling the truth? We go back, we pull these things out, and he's just talking. And, and it's, it's one thing to watch a child grow and to watch them get bigger and they grow out of clothes and they're getting taller and stronger and all that. It's another thing to try to remember the voice. And I, I go back and hear his little voice. We've got this great interview with Justice. So he says, Daddy, can I ask you a question? I said, sure, buddy. What's your question? He said, um, my question is, um, sometimes it's white outside and sometimes it's dark outside. I said, buddy, that is a great question. And I go back and I hear his little voice. And when he was little, he talked in a way he doesn't talk now. Don't get me started. <laughs> Jesse's the same way. Go back in her little voice, that little precious voice. 
And when you're a child, you talk like a child. And there were things I wish they had never grown out of them. I wish Jesse to this day still called them hangabers, not hamburgers, <laughs> hangabers. I was like, baby, never, never change. Say that, say hangaber forever, which I think it would be weird if she's 35 and married with kids. It's still calling them a hangaber. But when you're a child, what? You speak like one. It's one of the things that defines childhood. He said, when I was a child, I, I, I spoke like one. When I was a child, I thought like one. And, and trying to understand the way a child thinks, it's an adventure. It's fun to try to figure out what is going on in that little brain. Trying to figure out how they understand things, how they reason things. But Paul said, but when I became a man, I put those things away. In other words, when I'm a child, it's okay to talk like that. It's okay to think like that. It's okay to understand like that. But I'm a man. I, I, I'm grown. I'm developed. And it would not be okay for me to keep talking that way. It's not okay for me to keep thinking that way. It's not okay for me to keep understanding that way. Now, why is this in this great love chapter? Well, go back. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. Well, down around verse four. Love, which of course we've already said is this measurement of growth in our lives. He said, love is patient. Love is kind. We'll come back to that. Notice this though. Love does not envy. Why doesn't love this mark of maturity envy? Because that's childish. Envy is childish. And it's not okay for a bunch of full-grown adults to still be living with that, not having put it away. Envy's childish. I know this because it's in the nature of our little ones. Think about the little ones you're around. Does anybody have any toddlers in their lives, either your own or nephews or nieces or ones you know? Did you or anybody else teach them the word mine? <laughs> Nobody had to teach them. Nobody had to teach them that word. It just came out of them very naturally. And when do they say it? A couple little ones playing in the floor. And this guy over here, this little guy, he's totally content. Vroom, 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 right? He's just moving that truck back and forth, back and forth. Could not be happier until he looks over at that little dude who's got a different truck. And all of a sudden he looks at his truck and then at that guy's truck and he's thinking, mine. I don't want this truck anymore. I want that one. Mine, mine, mine. See, when people think about envy, a lot of times it gets um, kind of lumped in with jealousy. And though there, is, there are some similarities, there's also some very sharp distinctions. For example, God can be jealous, but he will never envy. The scripture says he's a jealous God. What's the difference? Jealousy has to do with somebody else having what belongs to you. That's why you can have a jealous husband, a jealous wife. If that husband who belongs to that wife is in the arms of another woman, she, this wife is jealous because somebody else has what belongs to her. 
That's why God can be jealous. You belong to him. And when you and I love the world and the things of the world, we put ourselves in the arms of the world. Somebody else has what belongs to him. Envy's different. Envy isn't, isn't wanting what actually belongs to you. Envy is looking at something that doesn't belong to you and desiring it. And it hit me, church, this morning, standing at the ironing board, ironing my little boy's shirt that he didn't wear today. Um, <laughs> I'd never seen this before. Envy has to do with completeness. In other words, I'm not complete unless I have that. Can you see how it connects to what we're talking about here? And it goes all the way back down to toddlers playing on the carpet. He's got a truck and he was fine 10 seconds ago until he saw what somebody else had. And here comes this mine, 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 mine. And nobody had to teach him to do it. And he said, I'm, he doesn't think this or understand it this way, but what's happening is he's saying, I'm not complete without what you've got. That's envy. And that's why it's so devilish, but it's childish. Why doesn't love envy? Because that's childish. And Paul said, I'm putting that away. Envy is a childish way of thinking. I mean, what if you and I, here we are, ranging from what, our, our 20s on up, right? What if we said that to each other? Mine, mine. You roll up here in a new car one day and there it is all shiny and new and I walk out and I go, mine, 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 I want it. Childish, right? Put it away. It is not okay to keep thinking like that. Love doesn't do that because love is mature and envy is childish. And you can go right down this list and say the exact same thing about every one of these things. Love does not envy. Why? It's childish. Love does not parade itself. Why? That's childish. Parade itself? What is that? Daddy, 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 watch, 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 watch what I can do. Watch me, daddy. Watch me, watch me, watch me, mama, 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 watch me, watch me, watch me, watch me, watch me. I remember walking at a conference one time about a break between sessions and I was talking to this guy we just met and we're walking back to the conference center and he had a group of kids, his, he had a big family and one of them, the whole time we're talking, daddy, 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 while he's trying to talk to me. And I was like, can you answer your child? <laughs> and he's like, yes, sweetheart, what is it? And she's like, um, 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 um. It's like, did you not have it in your mind already? <laughs> What you were going to say, um, 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 I can do a cartwheel. Okay, show us. And whatever she did was not, it was like a flailing of the arms and legs. It was not beautiful. But you would have thought in the way she desired the attention and demanded the attention, watch what I can do. Love, and that's fine when they're little. I'm not knocking our kids. I love it. It's cute. What's not cute is you and me. Watch me. Watch me. Watch me. Watch what I can do. Look what I can do. Watch me. Watch me. Watch me. Watch me. 
You know what I call that? Social media. It has become the parade of self. Watch what I can do. Look where I look what I've been. Look where I've been. Look what I've got. Look what I ate. Look what I almost bought. Who cares, man? So much of that is so childish and it's got to be put away. Now, if we had time, you could go right down through every one of these things. And, you, and if you had a child in your life, you could think, man, yep, that, that is a mark of their, their adolescence, their immaturity. But here's what I want to draw your attention to in the minutes that we have left. Notice what he said in verse four. Everything else in this chapter is love is not. Love does not. Love's not. It doesn't envy. It does not parade self. It is not puffed up. That means pride. It doesn't behave, <clears throat> behave rudely. Why? That's childish. Love does not seek its own. Why? Why? That's childish. It's not provoked because that's childish. It thinks no evil because that's childish. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. That's childish. These are all the things love doesn't do because all those things are childish ways of uh, speaking and thinking and understanding. But here's what love does do. Here's what love is. Verse four, love is patient and love is kind. In other words, and I want to center in on this one in the, in the time that we have. Love is patient. Which means to me that if patience, which is a fruit of the Spirit, is at work in our lives, then we're growing up. Let me just think about the opposite. If you've got children in your life, do you, do you know even one single child who is just really good at waiting really good at waiting for stuff. Huh? Or, or, or do the children you know, have they talked to you from the back seat and said, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? See, patience is not something that defines childhood, but it should define adulthood. It should define our maturity. For time's sake, don't turn there, but listen to this from the book of James. Chapter one, it says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work. There's that word maturity. There's that word complete. Let patience have its complete work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Patience. Talking about perfection, patience makes perfect. But he said, you got to let patience have this work. See, we talk a lot about faith, as we should and as we will do for all time until Jesus comes, I suppose. Faith is critical. Faith is so important. But you got to understand that faith and patience go together. It's through faith and patience that we inherit the promise. And I'll go as far as to say it to you like this. When you've run out of patience, you're out of faith. 
You can start in faith. Anybody can get excited. You can be like that ground that Jesus talked about, the word got sown on, and they received it with joy. Woo, that's a good word. Praise God, amen, brother. I like that. I received that great word. That's my answer. But then he said, but they have no root in themselves, and they only endure for a little while. When you're studying biblical patience, it's all about endurance. So faith, if faith is believing then what is patience? Jesus said they endure only for a little, a little while, but when persecution and tribulation arise for the word's sake, immediately they're offended. He said that was shallow ground. In Jesus' eyes, you want to know what a shallow person is? Somebody who's quickly and easily offended. That's shallow. Somebody who, who won't endure, who can't stay with it. It's easy to believe. Faith is believing, but what about patience? If faith is believing, then patience is continuing to believe. And you have to have it. Because if you get to the place where you're all out of patience, then it's as though you never had faith to begin with. This is how critical patience is to our life and to our development, our maturity. Let patience have this work in you. What would keep patience from having this work in you? Quitting? Huh? Quitting? God, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet, God? Am I there yet? Am I there yet? Am I there yet? No, come on, man. Let patience have some work. And if you'll let patience have a work in you, you will be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Faith is believing. Patience is continuing to believe. Man, we can get excited. You hear something you like? Praise God. Amen. I receive it. But what about when it hadn't come to pass Monday by 8 a.m.? Are you quick to be like, well, I guess this doesn't work. See, that's like a child tossed to and fro. Amen. Woo. -hoo. Next day, this stuff doesn't work. God is good. Next day, is there a God? <laughs> One day, God's my provider. Next day, God, don't you see the need that I have? It's so childish. Up and down and up and down. No stability. And I want to give you this one example in the life of Jesus. I said all that to bring you right here. John chapter 8. Remember, we're looking for perfection in him. Because as he is, help me, so are we in this world. Let me show you patience in the life and ministry of Jesus. Because if patience makes perfect and Jesus was perfect then you know Jesus was patient. And we'll show you what I'm talking about. John chapter eight, beginning in verse two, it says, now early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Verse five, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Now, verse six, it says this, they said, testing him, just like we read about earlier today. This, they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. Man, get the gravity of this situation and try to understand the environment and what was going on. Jesus is standing there, I suppose, in the temple or outside the temple and he's teaching. 
He's teaching, he's preaching like he did, like he did everywhere he went. And in the middle of it, somebody, more than one somebody, this group of Pharisees come busting in this meeting, interrupt him, totally shut down everything he was saying, and they throw down this woman and they accuse her of adultery and say, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act of it. And the implication is like, just now. Now all of this, the motive behind it is so satanic. It is so demonic. And these guys don't even realize how much they're playing into Satan's hand. But they're trying to trap Jesus. Now I've never experienced anything like that. I've preached in a lot of services and a lot of churches and a lot of places around the world and seen some stuff, okay? But I've never seen anything like that. We've been in some services where there were some strange things that happened and some different kind of interruptions and you do your best to flow with it. But if you're not a preacher, you're not a minister, then it's hard for people to understand. This isn't just standing here talking, you know, not just spouting stuff off the top of my head. If I'm doing my job, then the Holy Ghost is involved in what I'm doing right now. And personally, it's one of the reasons I don't like to get into a lot of conversation before and after. And I've had people do that to me before, where I've stood on a platform and just preach my guts out for an hour and walk off the platform and somebody grabs you. I remember one time in another country, this guy grabbed me and I just preached and he said, he had his wife there and he said, you have a word for her, go. And I just remember being almost shell-shocked. It's just hard to explain stepping off and out of that anointing back into just a conversational thing. It's difficult. And, and people I know sometimes wonder, why didn't he hang out? Why didn't he talk? Some of the dumbest stuff I've ever said, I've said immediately after I preached. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. Some of the stuff I've regretted the most has come immediately after I've preached. I, sometimes I can't make sense of what I'm saying. Sometimes it just sort of stutters and doesn't come out right. I have to guard that. I know that may not be true for everybody, but I have to guard that. But people have used this as a tactic. Remember my granddad was preaching one time at an outdoor rally. He preached, you know, he was my granddad, so a couple hours probably. And he got done, walked off the platform, and to this day we don't know how this happened, but as soon as he took a step onto the ground, news media was there with a camera in his face, bright light shining, wanted to argue with him about airplanes or something stupid. And people don't realize what it's like to be caught in that moment and the pressure that's on. Can you see what's happening to Jesus? Much more serious than news media. Much more serious than anything I've ever seen. They've thrown a woman down, said they caught her in adultery, and they brought the law to him. And they said, the law commands us to stone her. What do you say? Now, I want you to get the gravity of this because it's a trap. It's a trap and it's designed to catch him when he's not thinking about this. It's designed to catch him when his guard is down. Folks, don't be ignorant of the devil's devices. He's a jerk. And he does this kind of thing to get somebody to say something they're going to regret. And they said, here are your options. Stone her, don't stone her. A, B, one, two, which is it? Stone her, don't stone her. And the problem is these are both bad options. And that, to me, is the definition of being under pressure. 
Have you ever been under pressure? When it seems like you've got two choices and they both stink. And you got to decide like now, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Huh? What are you going to do? You're going to do this. Well, if I do that, it's going to hurt like this. Well, if I do that, it's going to hurt even worse. That's pressure. That's pressure. And this is Satan's tactic to apply pressure and to present you with two choices that both stink, that both hurt you. And then to demand an answer. The reason these are bad choices is a, if he goes with the law, stone her, then all of a sudden, everybody that's been drawn to him by his kindness, that's been drawn by compassion, that's been drawn by mercy, that's been drawn by love, all of a sudden, he says, stone her. And now, everybody that's been drawn to him, they see him as nothing more than one of these hard-hearted Pharisees. Just another religious guy. But then right on the other hand, if he says, don't stone her, he can't do that because they came with the law. And the law said to. And Jesus didn't come to break the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And in this moment, if he says, don't stone her, he's broken the law. And now all of a sudden, he's not our sinless, spotless sacrifice anymore. Can you see how much is hanging in this moment right here? This, just this second that he wasn't expecting, that he wasn't geared up for. What do you say? What do you do? And it gets worse because it says in the very next verse, verse seven, they continued or back up. Sorry. Verse six, this, they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But notice this, Jesus stooped down on the ground. He stooped down, excuse me, and wrote on the ground with his finger. I love this line. Are you ready? As though he did not hear. Then it says in verse seven, they continued asking him. That's pressure. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? What do we do? Huh? Stoner, don't stoner. Stoner, don't stoner. What are we going to do? What do you want to do, teacher? What do you want to do, preacher? Come on. Come on. Answer us. Answer us. And what's Jesus doing? Playing in the dirt. <laughs> As though he didn't hear. I love that because it gives me liberty to do the same thing. I can do that. I can act like I didn't hear it. I can act like I didn't even hear it. But he did. But what's happening right now? Hmm? What's going on? Why didn't he just answer him? Why? Because he doesn't have it. That's hard for us to think about. But Jesus didn't operate in the flesh as God. He operated in the flesh as man. And he said, I don't say anything unless I hear my father say it. So what's he doing down here? Being patient. Waiting. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And people have said a lot about, man, I wonder what he wrote in the ground. And I've heard people say, oh, he was, he was writing in the stone to tell them he's the one that wrote this law. And okay, fine. That's awesome. I don't know. All I know is that he's not answering. And maybe it was a few seconds, but how many of you know for that woman, it felt like an eternity. Her life hangs on what this man is about to say. 
which is why he doesn't knee-jerk response, which is why he doesn't get agitated, which is why he doesn't go in for a fight. You know what Jesus said in Luke chapter 20, I think? He said, by patience, possess your soul. When the pressure's on, you know this as well as I do, your soul is ready for a fight. Your soul is ready to respond. And how many people, when they're faced with something they don't know the answer to, just start running at the mouth uh, 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 and just start talking in circles and making no sense and, and, and looking for something to say. What did Jesus do? What's our example? Come on, perfection. This is perfection right here. And what do we do? We're just like him. If you don't have it, be quiet. Be patient. What's he waiting on? I believe Jesus is waiting on three things, and this is what I'm going to give you, and we're going to be dismissed. He's waiting on a word from God. Patience under pressure will wait on a word from God. I don't say it unless I hear him say it. And I'm not just going to try to fill space with a bunch of uhs and ahs and well and theory and opinion and say something I wish later I didn't say. I'm going to wait. When the pressure's on you, what do you do? You can act like you didn't even hear it. And you wait. Whether it's waiting for a moment or two, or whether it's waiting for days on end, don't open your mouth until you've got a word from God. Patience will wait on a word from God. Number two, Jesus is waiting on the wisdom of God. That same place in James chapter one, let patience have its perfect work, that you would be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Part of patience, complete work is the time that it takes to fill you with the wisdom of God. That's not something you get always just in an instant, just in a second. It's got to grow in you and develop in you. What's Jesus down there doing? Huh? Waiting on a word, waiting on the wisdom. And finally, you know what Jesus is doing? He's waiting on the witness of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to say anything until the, the, the witness of the Spirit goes off in me. This is what you and I are to be led by every single day of our lives, the witness of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that His Spirit dwells in our spirits and bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God. And that word sons is mature sons. He's waiting on a word. He's waiting on the wisdom. And he's waiting on a witness. There's a lot that we could say about patience. But this is what I want you leaving with today. When the pressure's on, church, you don't even have to act. You, you don't have to act like you even heard it. And somebody could be standing over your shoulder going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Huh? 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 And you can just stand there and smile. And hey, if they don't like awkward silence, let them deal with it. You're waiting. You're waiting. What are you waiting on? I don't say anything until I hear my father say it. There's a way to answer this. And see, Satan came through these Pharisees and said, you've got two choices. They both stink. Stone her, don't stone her. But because Jesus was patient... 
And because he loves these people and he loves this woman, he waited on the word, the witness and the wisdom and he got it. And when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Just a second ago, the only choices were A and B. But if you will get quiet and be patient and listen to the Holy Spirit, guess what? He'll tell you about C. He might even tell you about D, E, and F. Things you didn't even know were options, but you find it out in patience, not being in a hurry. This is a word to somebody or somebody's today. Slow down. Slow. In aviation, they talk about going into low and slow. When you're up at cruise altitude, you're flying along, and depending on what you're in, you could be doing five, six hundred miles an hour. But when you're coming in for an approach, it's not time to be doing 500, 600 miles an hour at 30,000 feet. You're coming low to the ground, you slow it down. When you're in decision making mode, church, and it's time to know what to do and where to go and who to do life with and what to be a part of and what move to make, you need to go into low and slow. Slow down. This is how we respond to pressure with patience. I think that's the title of this today patience under pressure. And if you will wait on what? What's the first one? Wait on the word of God. Wait on the wisdom of God and wait on the witness of the spirit. You'll get it and you'll know exactly what to do. You'll know exactly where to go. You'll know exactly what move to make with patience. Amen. Amen. This makes sense to you today. Did you get anything out of it? Why don't you stand on your feet? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus, a man of patience, a man of endurance. Would you bow your head and let me pray for you today before you go? Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you. And we do as you instructed us here in your word. We look unto Jesus. We set our eyes on Jesus. The picture of perfection, the picture of what it is to be established and strengthened and settled. And we say by faith in his name that we are just like he is, just as he is, so are we in this world. We thank you, Lord, for doing this work in us. You are the God of all grace who wills to perfect, establish, and strengthen us and settle us. We thank you for it. Now, Lord, we commit to you again today, afresh and anew, to walk not just by faith, but by faith and patience. Lord, we want to let patience have its perfect work in us that we would be complete, perfect, lacking nothing. We commit to you today, we're not giving up, we're not backing off, we're not quitting early. We're gonna stay with it. And we are gonna believe to the very end. Why don't you say this out loud? Father in heaven, I come to you in Jesus' name. I believe in my heart that you raised Jesus from the dead. I confess with my mouth, Jesus is my Lord. Take my life, Lord Jesus. Do something with it. I am a believer. I am a person of faith, which means I believe. I believe you. I believe your word. 
I believe your truth. But I am also a person of great patience. I'm not quitting, Lord. I will endure to the end. I put away childish things. I put away envy. I put away rudeness. I put away pride. I put those things away so that patience can have its perfect work in me. That I will be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing in Jesus' name. You believe that today? Can God do this in your life? Yes, he can. Yes, he will. Let's give him some praise for it. Father, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY and any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the House of Faith.